I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. Hello, Ben. How are you? Agnes, I'm doing well. It's lovely to hear your voice. How are things? Good. I'm worried you can potentially hear a train in the background here, but hopefully not. Things are okay. How are things with you? Things are, they're fine. Yeah, to Good. be honest. Just start of a new week. It's starting to feel a bit more like normality, Yeah, you know, routine, getting used to, to doing all of this stuff from the comfort of my own bedroom. And yeah, I think broadly, all right. I'm, I'm trying to self-improve a little bit during this time of this time of lockdown um uh-huh. i've just signed up for some french language classes which excellent might be quite interesting so just trying to focus on things that you can control you know <laughs> yeah i've started learning the piano have you how's yeah. it going oh very badly because i i play instruments like me music and so it's that really difficult thing of like I know how it should sound and I can, but I, my hands aren't doing the right thing yet. It's really, I'm, I'm bad because I've just started, but being very bad at something that is sort of closely ish linked to other things you can do is, is frustrating. I don't know, <laughs> but it's good for the soul. Good for yes, the soul. It, it As will is be. your French. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. French is but, a very similar situation. I think it's going to be very frustrating. Well, Who did you speak to this week, Ben? So this week I spoke to Lena Hoffman, who is an associate fellow with our Africa programme. And we were having a conversation about the situation at the moment in West Africa and the Sahel region around food security and the impact that the coronavirus pandemic might be having on the food security crisis that had already existed before this came along. So... It's uh, pretty challenging stuff to listen to, and it's just such a complicated problem. There's so many different factors at play, from the climate to the economy, and just infrastructure as well, just transport in the countries that we're talking about. But there are some kind of green shoots of optimism that I won't spoil that sort of allowed us to think that things could get better. Okay, good. Yeah, because we all need that. That sounds really interesting, though. Exactly. Yeah, but who did you speak to, Agnes? Well, I was lucky enough to speak to Lisa John, who is the Secretary General of Civicus, which, if you haven't heard of, is a really interesting organisation, which is um, sort of a global alliance of civil society activists and organisations. So talking to her, she spoke to me from all the way from South Africa about what Civicus does and has been doing and how coronavirus and the pandemic has changed their work or um, has changed civil society more broadly across the globe and she mentioned you know things that are happening across the world that shamefully I hadn't heard of and it just made me realize how local a lot of our news has got with this pandemic we're not really hearing a huge amount about what's happening in Southeast Asia or like you say, West Africa, or because it's so focused on what's happening around the corner is what I'm finding anyway. Absolutely. No, I mean, that sounds fascinating. And and over the next few weeks, we're going to try and address that in our own small way, aren't we, really? I think that's... uh, Well, yes. So if you're you're a listener and you're living not in Britain, we are looking for short experiences of people living all over the world and what Corona has done to their life. We know lots of people and we're commissioning lots of them, but 
if you wanted to send us a short snippet that we could use on an episode of Undercurrents, there is an audio record button, isn't there, on our page, Ben? There absolutely is. Yeah, if you go to undercurrents.libsyn.com, which is our main website, there is a small button on the right-hand side which says, start recording, send a voice message to Undercurrents. What? Yes. <laughs> so click that button, make sure you've got a microphone on your laptop or whatever, and just, yeah, tell us what life has been like for you. Yeah, if you could keep it under two minutes, we'd be really grateful, but we'd love to hear from you. So yeah, send us things. But on that note, Ben, should we have a listen? Let's have a listen. So this week I'm here speaking to Lisa John, who is the new Secretary General of Civicus, which is a global alliance of civil society organisations and activists dedicated to strengthening citizen action and civil society throughout the world. But I'm sure Lisa will explain a bit more what her organisation does. Thank you for speaking to me all the way from South Africa, Lisa. Hello. Hello, Agnes. Thank you for inviting me. Really pleased to be here and to engage with the new and the younger groups that are listeners to this podcast. In terms of who uh, Civicus is, I'm going to try and break down all of the big words that were on our website. So essentially, we have uh, we are a membership-based organization. We have around 10,000 members in 165 countries. And uh, it, it's a really interesting mix of traditional large to small NGOs or civil society organizations, which is more of the formal kind of establishment in the nonprofit sector. But 50% of our members, and especially the ones who are, who've joined us in the last two to three years, are actually young individuals from you know, across the world. A big portion of them are from the global south. So I, I think that's really also driven us to rethink how we engage with activists on the ground, how we're supporting more citizen-led spontaneous movements for change. So we've been around since 1993, but I think we get younger as our membership gets younger. So those are interesting lessons we're learning. So your demographic has, has changed quite dramatically, would you say, over the last few years? Yes, it has indeed. And uh, if you'll recall, uh, last year, 2019, was called the year of people power. So we saw wide ranging movements across the world, almost to the point where I think if COVID uh, hadn't happened, uh, we would probably see the fall and change of regimes in, in many parts of the world. So it, it was, it's almost as if it was invented to to stop that uh, democratic movement across countries. But having said that, I think, uh, yes, it, it has really informed uh, how we have changed and adapted uh, what we're doing on the ground. I think the, the push now has been not just for civicists, but for civil society organizations across the world to be far more uh, engaged with local movements and far more involved in co-creating strategies and designs for change rather than a top-down approach. So before we, we go on to how the pandemic has changed your work, I just wanted to drill down a little bit further into, into your mission statement. So an so alliance of civil society organisations and activists dedicated to strengthening citizen action and civil society throughout the world. That sounds like an amazing mission and aim. But what practically does that mean? How do you guys sort of support that? Or is it that you're giving people throughout the world tools to do it? Or yeah, how do you do that? 
So one of the principal ways in which we kind of act on our mission is to ensure that civic space isn't actually closing across the world. So we regularly track how civil society is doing in in different contexts, in different national contexts. But we also monitor governments and ensure that governments aren't creating new laws or new restrictions that prevent citizens from forming organizations and expressing themselves. So the, the fundamental right to assembly, association and expression is essentially what we defend. So you may or may not be an organization, you may not be a collective, you just may be an individual voice who wants to express your opinion as a citizen of the place you live in. And, and you may not even be uh, someone who's recognized as a legal citizen. You may be a, you know, a migrant or a refugee, but anybody in the world does have those three fundamental freedoms. And therefore, I think we work quite closely with both governments directly, but also with multilateral institutions like the UN to ensure that those freedoms are preserved and protected. And by and large, do you think that, again, before the pandemic broke, do you think there's been an increasing respect for the idea of an important civil society from governments across the world? Or do you think there is an increased threat to citizen action? Yeah, so unfortunately, even before the pandemic, we were seeing a consistent trend towards the shrinking of civic space. So Uh, You know, the deliberate attempt by governments to restrict individuals or organizations from engaging in public uh, activities. In fact, as of this point in time, according to the system, we have two tracks of space across the world, which is called the Civicus Monitor and is also available on our website. Only 3% of the world's population actually enjoys the full fundamental freedoms of expression, association and assembly. Huge amount of people, in fact, 40% of them, so 4 out of 10 people on the planet actually live in, you know, restricted contexts, civic space contexts. So it means that uh, increasingly over the years and over the last decade, in fact, we've seen governments become more and more, I mean, take more measures to close down the ways in which we can spontaneously express our opinions about what they do. And then, of course, express our criticisms. And I think that's what, you know, these measures are put in place for so that you don't have the opportunity to actually critique policies or practices that are put in place. And that has actually been a very, very strong trend even during the pandemic. So a lot of the emergency measures that have been introduced are also being accompanied by measures that actually penalize or punish people for criticizing how the government is responding to the pandemic. So moving on to the pandemic, how has it fundamentally changed the way that you guys have to work? Or has it fundamentally changed the way that you guys have to work? So I think there are two broad ways in which we've responded and and adapted our work. One is, of course, because our mission is to protect civil society and civic space. We've been consistently tracking how governments are introducing new measures or policies that further impede and restrict civic space. I think the trends that you see could be explained in three broad uh, ways. One is, of course, something we've all experienced, uh, no matter which country you're in, is, uh, you know, restricted access to information uh, and and the increase of censorship. So kind of stark examples of that would uh, probably be China and Vietnam, where, you know, there are are quite severe consequences for how you uh, provide information or speak about the COVID-19 experience. We saw that in the early cases 
uh, in China as well. Uh, but but more broadly, I think there have been a set of countries uh, in the Middle East, for instance, who also kind of completely stopped the production of newspapers, the production and delivery of newspapers, uh, citing that as a possible opportunity for the virus to spread. So I think we're seeing kind of uh, these really widespread and uh, you know uh, somewhat inexplicable measures that are quite directly targeted at controlling the spread of information uh, and the, the the role of media as the vehicle for that information. You're also seeing an increase in the number of targeted attacks on both citizens, uh, but also quite clearly on human rights defenders and journalists. So uh, two examples of where citizens have been under attack for, for speaking out include police-related uh, measures in Sri Lanka, for instance, where you could just have action taken against you for any information that you share on COVID. Uh, and then in Pakistan, uh, you had the case of doctors being arrested for protesting the lack of protective uh, equipment. But similarly, I think you have, particularly in uh, Latin America and parts of Africa, an increased number of instances where journalists are being attacked either physically or through smear campaigns. And, and the same goes for activists. So I think there's this real sense of fear from governments and, and not wanting citizens actually to comment on how they're experiencing the different measures that are being you know, implemented during the pandemic. And, and, and more worryingly, not wanting to listen really uh, to what people are saying and how, how things should be improved. And that's a really bad place uh, for us to be in terms of just the relationship between governments and citizens. I, I'm sure you've also noticed that there's been a really marked increase in police abuses during lockdown. So you have all these really gruesome images of people getting beaten up for having broken measures, uh, either when they're going out to earn their livelihoods or just to look for food uh, in for many parts of the world where people don't have access to income uh, or other forms of support. Uh, and I think uh, cases in Asia, especially India and uh, the Philippines have been uh, really front and center in the media around this, but also East Africa. So, uh, you know, I think Uganda has been in the news again this week for uh, some really brutal you know, attacks on uh, the LGBTQI community in particular. And I think these are, I mean, this is really a moment where no matter where you are, and it, it doesn't matter which part of the world you live in, we do need to speak out together and, and, and really join in, in calling for governments to uh, behave better during the pandemic and especially treat, I think, vulnerable populations uh, with the dignity uh, and, and the approach they deserve. Why do you think... The pandemic has has meant some governments have behaved more like this or have decided that they can behave more like this. It's a sign or an indication of an already depleted relationship between uh, the citizen and the state. So I think in countries where we haven't paid enough attention as communities and as citizens to holding governments accountable, uh, governments are going ahead and exercising, uh, you know, muscle over, uh, especially you know, marginalized and deprived communities, uh, but just continuing to do what they already did. So almost all of the countries, there's actually a list of them uh, on the Civicus Monitor website who are engaging in inappropriate behavior uh, in relation to civic freedoms, are, are countries who are already on the track to, you know, closing, repressing or obstructing uh, civic space. You do have a few examples, um, you know, including South Africa, for instance, introducing 
certain measures which are uh, you know citizen or civic freedom unfriendly uh, and they are on the in, in the list of open governments uh, i think where that's happening and where we need to be concerned at a broader scale would really be again on the rollback of uh, social protections and environmental protections and you're seeing now news coming out of the us for instance uh, but also india where uh you know either businesses or other uh, stakeholders are actually demanding that we wind down labor laws and environmental laws uh, or they're pushing through projects uh, which aren't really getting a lot of parliamentary or public scrutiny uh, as a result of covid so so i think it's really fundamentally about how strong societies are in providing access to information irrespective of the pandemic and how strong the mechanisms for publics to question Uh, and and people who represent the public to question uh, decisions and how they're made uh, as well as uh, you know ensure that there's a transparent flow of information and and there is some level of accountability before laws are changed or introduced i think that's at the heart of this on a more cheerful note potentially although i worry that you may not have an answer to this which will just be incredibly depressing for all of us but have there been any places or countries where the pandemic has caused an increase or a strengthening in sort of citizen action and civil society so i think that's actually the flip side uh, and 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 quite uh, an interesting parallel is that on one hand while while governments are you know restricting civic space of course we're also seeing some really phenomenal leadership especially from women leaders across the world right so both new zealand and germany for instance have been cited as uh, you know examples of the kind of global leadership we need going forward but uh, in relation to civil society itself i think uh, an an interesting contradiction is that even as laws and and uh, decrees are being put in place to restrict how citizens operate civil society is actually uh, you know has really responded amazingly well to the challenges that have been thrown to us by covid-19 and and is actually is actually thriving in a way in terms of building new systems of support um, public support and solidarity so just to give a few examples one i think you've seen that you know civil society organizations across the world have responded in an agile and immediate way to especially the essential kind of needs and priorities of communities so a lot of the uh, life saving services uh, and in some countries more than government civil society organizations have stepped in and made sure uh, that food supplies shelter protection from uh, domestic violence a lot of the other really critical core life support related systems um, have been provided i mean including you know kind of uh, these collectives that that are making masks and uh, you know allowing people to really harness that strength of community across the world so i i think that um, has come really strongly to the fore i think we're seeing the emergence of very very diverse and vibrant communities of care and solidarity across the world uh, so so I, i think this is a moment where everybody who's in lockdown in any particular part of the world is wondering how can i be of greater service to my community or to another person like me who's facing similar challenges so you're seeing again a profusion of uh, you know efforts to to provide uh, the kind of support the kind of insights uh, that you need so uh, for civicus itself we have a network that's focused on diversity and inclusion which has been consistently exchanging information connecting solutions uh, and and finding ways to really 
amplify uh, any violations that are happening on the basis of identity. So as a woman, as a, a gay person, or uh, as a person who's disabled, if, if there are challenges you're facing, that has been kind of like a global community that's trying to react very quickly and then uh, find, you know, proactive ways of upscaling and replicating solutions that are working in any part of the world. And then thirdly, I think there, there's a, a major part of civil society that's also thinking quite strongly about how we build back better. So what do we need to be doing with governments to ensure that you know resource flows are uh, being directed to equitable and climate-friendly purposes, but uh, also seeing that this is really an opportunity for us to reset a lot of the wider inequities that we've been so aware of, whether it's in relation to capital or climate, or just how labor and social protection systems work. I think there's been a real window of opportunity that has opened because people have understood how the lack of those fundamental uh, social systems is affecting everyone. So not having effective health systems in place, not having effective social and employment-related protection systems in place, it's not just the problem now of the poorest or the most disadvantaged, it's a problem for everyone. And, and I think, uh, you know, the recent call for well-being to be the indicator of uh, human progress rather than GDP, uh, which is coming out of New Zealand. And then also, I think in the UK, there's been a survey uh, this week, which has shown that a large majority of people really want to see the well-being of people and planet being placed uh, at the center of development. I think these are really once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunities to shift power and, and to really uh, put the world uh, on track to a far more equitable and sustainable future. What is the one out of all those things that you've listed, you know, this idea that we, the world will be different after, after COVID, what's the one thing out of all of those that you personally think will make the biggest difference to global welfare and global citizen power going forward? So maybe I'll, I'll root that in a very practical example. Uh, so Civicus, uh, you know, is a sector body uh, for civil society. We we track civic space, we track human rights. We're, we're much more aligned towards looking outward and doing things that the larger community needs. I think this crisis really brought home to us the fact that you cannot live in silos and you need to look at the entirety of your response. Uh, so for us, I think very early uh, after the pandemic was declared, uh, we realized that not everybody knows somebody who's been infected with COVID-19, but everybody knows someone who's either lost their job or is in threat of losing their job because of the pandemic. So for us, uh, you know, we realized quite early on that not only did we have to put in place those health and, uh, you know, work-related transition measures for all of our co-workers, but we also needed to be thinking forward and protecting uh, employment and income for the people who work with Civicus, but also call on civil society to defend their own frontline workers. So for me, this has really been a moment of getting away from the big numbers, the averages, the macro kind of articulations of change and really bringing it home. Uh, and it's saying that it's not just about what governments and businesses and other institutions do. It's also about leading by example uh, and, and showing what you yourself in your individual and organizational capacity can do. So one of the things we brought out, which was very unlike, uh, I mean, we're not the experts on social protection. We've, we're not really known for it. But I think one of the things we just had to do from 
a completely ethical point of view was uh, develop a social security protocol for civil society uh-huh. so we were basically asking all civil society organizations to commit to protecting their own workers both in relation uh, like i said to health and supporting their health access so you know covering costs of treatment or testing or making sure that they had flexible hours recognizing that people especially women who are at home in many cultures have to do the heavy lifting on the care related responsibilities within the household so it means that if we if all of our workers are working from home they're actually doing a pretty much working throughout the day and night to kind of keep all the balls in the air so i think it really meant taking quite an open and flexible approach towards how you know we are putting in our time and how we we're organizing our deliverables but more than that i think we were calling on people to say that you know you know what resources you have be transparent about how far you can go in relation to protecting contracts and extending them if not to till the end of the year then at least for the duration of the lockdown period because the lockdown period is the one moment uh, where nobody can literally walk out of their house and find a new job Yeah. Uh, and the reason i think uh, for that was that we already know that 70% of uh, the workers in civil society are women a big part of them are also young people so it is going to be women and young people who will lose their job first if organizations put in place cost cutting measures i think the response we've had to that has been really remarkable there've been around 200 organizations you know from our own networks who've signed up most of them are small organizations in the global south so I, i think it's a real statement of value based leadership from community organizations and in the places that you don't usually have a lot of media or public attention on but also i think business related networks have 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 come up and spoken to us i think uh, the the sustainable development goals has been kind of used as a reference point to say that companies need to also be adopting these uh social protection measures and and we are encouraged for instance to see some networks uh like the world benchmarking alliance which works with businesses to ensure their alignment to the sustainable development goals uh take this on and say you know let's let's see how we can actually promote it with our own um you know corporate members as well so i think that's a clear opportunity for civil society and business organizations to work together and really demonstrate that the leadership you know so this is an exceptional moment and we do need leaders of organizations to step up and show exceptional leadership and solidarity in response to covid oh lisa thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us anybody who's interested and they should anyway visit um civicus's website at civicus.org to find out a bit more about everything that they're doing but thank you so much lisa i really appreciate it thank you very much we're also twitter friendly so you can uh, drop us a line at civicus alliance and we'd be happy to answer questions queries and any other information you need So today I am really delighted to be joined all the way from Luxembourg by my colleague Dr. Lena Corney Hoffman who is an associate fellow in the Africa program at Chatham House. Lena, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me Ben. Today we're going to be talking about the potential impacts of the coronavirus pandemic in the Sahel region and and West Africa, particularly looking at the impact that it might be having on 
food security in the region. And it's based on an expert comment that Lena co-wrote with Paul Melly, who's another fellow in the Africa program, titled Coronavirus Risks Worsening a Food Crisis in the Sahel and West Africa. So Lena, at the start of this expert comment, you say that the pandemic has struck these regions at a time when they were already under severe pressure from insecurity and the effects of climate change on its land, food and water resources. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that picture and the implications for food in the region? Uh, Thank you very much for that question, Ben. So I think I'll first of all kind of dial back to a webinar we had last week Uh, the weeks kind of blend into each other. But Mm -hmm. webinar we had last week with the regional economist for the World Food Programme. And it was on the food security, the implications of the coronavirus infection or pandemic uh, to food security in the region. And one of the comments that at the top of that meeting that we shared uh, or had in common is that if we weren't talking about the pandemic in the Sahel and West Africa, we'll be talking about the threat of desert, a desert locust outbreak. So the point of that is the food security picture for the region was pretty worrying even before the arrival of the pandemic to the region, I think round about the end of February, the first case being reported or recorded in Nigeria. So well before the pandemic arrived the region, the Sahel and West Africa, so the countries that combined to make up this region, around about 17 countries, were facing quite severe crises simultaneously. Like you mentioned, there's a long-running security problems and terrorism in the Lake Chad Basin region. That's across Nigeria, uh, Niger, and Chad, and Cameroon as well. Also, security threats and issues in Burkina Faso, Mali, and all the countries around that, Mauritania and all the countries in that area as well, in that neighbourhood as well. And these security risks have led to large numbers of displaced people, market disruptions in the region, people being unable to access their farmlands and pastures. So you can think about the implications of all of that to agricultural production in the region. And all of this happening against the backdrop of climate change, which like you pointed out that we said in the piece, has been putting pressure on resources like land and water, which have contributed to a lot of the local conflicts that we have seen in the region. So the food security picture was pretty grim because of these security threats and as well the potential of them being compounded by the threat of desert locust outbreak moving from East Africa into West Africa. The risk of that infestation of desert locusts was also combining with an armyworm infestation concern and all of these coming together and having some really terrible consequences for food systems in the region, particularly crops. Within that not great picture, you have the issue of poor pasture, in parts of Mauritania and Senegal because of below average rainfall in 2019. And this is kind of like the third consecutive year of poor below average rainfall. So two reports. So the first report that I was referring to that we had the webinar discussion with the World Food Programme last week, a report before that uh, came out from the Food Crisis Prevention Network. This is a governance platform that's about 36 years old, made up of regional bodies, regional organizations, 
national governments in West Africa and the Sahel and its international partners, they put out an assessment. So there is an assessment of the food security situation in the region on an annual basis. So the most recent assessment put the figures of the numbers of people at risk or requiring rather food and nutrition assistance at 17 million people during the lean period, that's the middle period of the year. And that includes uh, 1.2 million people facing a state of emergency. That's one phase shy of a full-on famine. And that number is double the number of people that typically are affected by food insecurity in an average year. So within the context of these pre-existing food security challenges, the uh, reports that came out from the Food Crisis Prevention Network and the World Food Programme indicate that the cumulative effect of the security situation and the COVID-19 health crisis is that round about 50 million people who are currently under food stress could find themselves in a situation of food crises. So the pre-existing situation was quite grim. Compounded by a pandemic, we have a almost an accelerant or an acceleration of, of those food risks in the region. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the impact of COVID-19 on, on this picture. But before we do, I just wondered what sort of policy measures were being recommended to deal with the pre-existing crisis and whether much work had actually been done in delivering that or whether was it still quite theoretical at that stage? The region has, like we kind of pointed out in our executive, our expert comment rather, the region has quite well-established systems and protocols for monitoring climate and weather patterns, transhumans, so the movement of livestock across the region, monitoring market systems and productivity, and just generally gathering together seasonal data and agricultural statistics. So there are protocols and systems in place that monitor these trends, and that information is shared across the network, across national governments, so that ministries can respond. So on an annual basis, when you have these food situation assessments Um, Governments are encouraged to put in place response plans. These involve supporting farmers, for example, uh, boosting agricultural output, the kinds of investments to make this happen, providing agricultural inputs for farmers so they can have better yields during the harvest, providing humanitarian assistance or at least enabling and facilitating local and international organizations to provide humanitarian assistance, particularly to populations that are at risk because of conflict. So emergency systems were already starting to rev up in response to the pre-existing food security uh, situation in the region. Of course, all of this happened or had to happen all at the same time. So I guess stage at which national response plans are at at the moment is looking at updating these plans in the context of the impact. So the second layer of impact that the pandemic poses to the food uh, situation in the region. So there is quite a well-established system of collective risk assessment in order to support governments to mobilise emergency support. And that kicks in when these assessments come through. But 
in the context of the pandemic, all of that kind of has changed and has to be amplified to match the risks and the threat that the pandemic poses to the region. That's a really interesting picture that you've drawn. In terms of the kind of basic understanding of what's required to change this picture, is it too simplistic to say, to reduce it down to more food needs to be produced or that the food that exists needs to be better moved around the region? I wouldn't say it's simplistic because I think in both reports that I highlighted at the top of our conversation, so in the report from the Food Crisis Prevention Network and as well as the report from the World Food Programme, they both indicate that food supplies in the region are actually quite robust for the year. So cereal production, for example, was up this year on average, on the, against the five-year average, and as well as production of tubers and, and uh, legumes in the region. I think for tubers, it's around about 16%. In terms of kind of like the staple products that are well-consumed across the region, supplies are actually quite robust. What is the challenge then is uh, the movement of these food supplies and distribution of these food supplies across the region. And that's where the response to the pandemic makes these movements of food very complicated. And I think that was the key point that we were trying to make in the report is to draw a lot of attention or a bit more attention to the findings of these kinds of reports based on careful and quite systematic technically sound monitoring of the food situation in the region, and also to indicate that the response to the pandemic is at risk of making a precarious food security situation worse. So if you have governments in the region closing their borders, particularly to food flows that would have naturally moved, for example, from southernmost countries to to more hinterland countries, you risk creating a food crisis or deepening a food crisis outside of your borders. So the key point of the report and to, you know, the point of your question of is it simplistic or not, is that one of the key points we wanted to make with the report is that coordination is crucial. Coordination, particularly in a context where we have very little information or at least uh, capacity to, to track the health emergency itself is quite modest and very varied. What we do have capacity for and what regional bodies have capacity for and have shown over the years is an ability to monitor the food security situation. So in responding to one, that is a health emergency, it it is really, really important not to throw further off balance or to worsen a food crisis or food security situation in responding to a health situation. Yeah, so let's dive a bit deeper then into what's been happening during the coronavirus pandemic in this region. Could you first just tell us maybe a little bit about how much the region has been affected by the coronavirus? Like what's been the scale of the health emergency? And then maybe we can move a bit further on to the impact that the response has had on the infrastructure in the region? So I think it was in late February that the first case of COVID-19 was reported in West Africa. So I think that was recorded in Nigeria and literally within a month it had spread to all 17 countries in the Sahel, uh, across the Sahel and West Africa. Um, Of course, the number of confirmed cases 
depends on the rates of actual tests. So different, all the different countries have different testing capabilities and as well different testing protocols. Some countries are testing more than others. But according to the Sahel and West Africa Club Secretariat, there were about 13,723 confirmed cases as of today and uh, 337 deaths. Nigeria has the most cases with just around a little under 3,000 cases. The population of this region is about 360 million people. So even though 13,000 cases may not sound like a lot of cases, the impact of the global recession or the global situation or economic situation on the region is not minimal at all. So the, the, the spread of the infection itself is around about 13,000, give or take variations in testing protocols and, and capacities across uh, the region. That number is most likely to be more. We've seen an escalation or an increase in cases in places like Kano, this is in northern Nigeria. Uh, it's the largest uh, state in that part of uh, the country. So there have been spikes in different places. So the numbers have been changing in some places exponentially and in some places not. So it's quite a varied uh, and quite a different picture. But we have Nigeria, Ghana, Guinea up there as the countries of the region with the highest number of cases unfortunately. What's the level of preparedness in the health system in these countries? Are the health systems in this in this sort of Sahel region, are they relatively well set to be dealing with large-scale epidemics within their countries? Same with the numbers, it's a varied picture. Like we highlighted in the report, quite valuable disease protocols and systems were put in place to address past outbreaks of Ebola and cholera and other infectious diseases in the region. So quite a number of countries in the region, in West Africa and Central Africa, have systems in place. Um, they have disease control bodies that are quite responsive and quite agile on the ground in the context of these other regional outbreaks that the region has, has faced in the past. But in terms of if you were to pull the lens back on the wider picture of healthcare, particularly for other kinds of diseases that are quite common in the region, like malaria, HIV and tuberculosis, the capacities to address these other real health threats are quite inadequate and, and insufficient. So I think if you were to map on top of that the ways in which we don't understand the spread of the infection of the coronavirus in the region, I think it's a fair assessment to make that healthcare systems across the board will struggle. One of the uh, aspects that's been generating quite a lot of debate in the media in, in Western Europe has been the extent to which organisations like the EU could get involved in coordinating a kind of transnational response to, to this pandemic. Have we seen much regional cooperation in that regard in, in West Africa as well? Or is this very much a, a question of national health systems putting in their own measures and their own preparedness? 
I think it, it did begin with national health systems putting in their own measures and their own responses, as it was the same with the Ebola outbreak in the region. But I think just months before the coronavirus arrived in West Africa, the West Africa Health Organization was working with the 15 member states of ECOWAS to develop and put in place responses. Different national governments had already begun to, in consultation with WHO, uh, the regional office, and as well the continental office, putting in place protocols at borders for checking you know, cross-border travellers. So there has been, I think, maybe more quickly than you would say Europe, there has been or there was uh, a regional, the mapping or the beginnings of and the establishment of a regional response in terms of monitoring and checking travellers across borders. And I think now we're seeing that uh, regional response on the health side of things ramp up Mm -hmm. with pronouncements or at least efforts rather of ECOWAS to encourage its member states to pull resources together, to purchase medical supplies, to boost testing capacity in the region. So there is increasingly from week to week with the support of international partners, with the support of the Africa Union, for example, and centers for disease control across the continent to support a more coordinated, or at least develop and establish and implement a more coordinated regional response. Beyond the kind of health response, what do you think has been the effect on the economies of these of these countries and also just in their kind of infrastructure, if we're going to bring it back to this question of the impact on food security and the food system? How have we seen the pandemic affect West African society, I guess? I think, like we were talking about earlier on, the pandemic itself, unfortunately, um, will act as almost an amplifier or an accelerant of a lot of the risks and threats that the region was set to face in 2020. Mm-hmm. So many of the economies in the region have been exposed to the negative economic impacts of the global recession. So the first layer of impact really is that socioeconomic impact itself on the region and the impact of the disease itself is within that, or at least can be described as uh, as a second layer to that. Prices for uh, many of the commodities, such as oil, minerals, agricultural exports, that governments in the region dep- depend on for revenue, have crashed. So this is this creates an enormous burden or pressure on budgets. Many of the budgets or governments across the region have cut the the benchmark for uh, their budgets um, for 2020. So, of course, you can think about the implications of this budgetary pressure and cuts to investments in health and in assistance for many of the mem- many of the people within these countries to address their food and nutrition needs. And within that, I think besides the impact of the collapse of uh, commodity prices. A number of the countries in the region, like Bena, the Gambia, Liberia, Sierra Leone, depend on food imports. For some of these countries, their food imports uh, exceed 50% of their total exports. So 
even putting the impact of the disease aside, food prices have risen in many of the countries of the region as a result of the disruption to imports with countries that perhaps have exported food products to the region like India, um, which put a restriction on rice exports. So these have had implications for many of the countries in West Africa who have imported from parts of Asia. And of course, the disruptions to exports have had implications internally for food prices in the region and as well the disruptions to markets as a result of security, as a result of the response to the pandemic, have created pressures for households in the region and um, reduced the purchasing capacity of of many of these households. And I think a final implication that I think is worth mentioning is that for many of the countries in the region, like Senegal, Togo and Nigeria, households within these countries depend on remittances. For some of them, the remittances are up to, or more than, uh, 9% of their GDP. So that, of course, um, those numbers or those remittances will, of course, contract, given the context of the global recession. And for lots of the, lots of the migrants, uh, migrant workers from these countries not being able to send money back home, back to their uh, um, home countries. So all of these factors, the commodity price collapse, export restrictions, dependency on food imports, all of these have implications for um, households across the region, their purchasing power, and finally have implications for um, their food security situation. That's a pretty complicated and bleak picture that you're painting on that. I just wondered if we could, or if I maybe it's too soon, but I wonder whether there are particular responses that could be put in place to this. Do you have a sense of what things governments and regional organisations could be doing to kind of mitigate the effects of this as it plays out? So I guess governments in the region, based on quite the grim and uh, troubling economic picture that 2020 is looking like for many of the economies in the region, the reality is that governments are facing, West African governments, Sahelian governments are facing some very difficult and I think, frankly, impossible trade-offs on the security front, that is physical security with conflicts in quite a number of parts of the region, the health crises, and we're not just talking about uh, the pandemic itself, the coronavirus pandemic itself, but also the food emergency situation. So they're not easy options. There are no easy um, solutions in this context. A lot of the governments of the region have had a lot of experience with responding to food emergencies. So a number of them have put in place a range of measures. I think it'll be worth highlighting a couple of them. And of course, to indicate that there are a number of these measures that will require investments for them to actually be implemented. So Burkina Faso, for example, has put in place, the government there, the Ministry of Agriculture, has put in place a a network of shops um, selling subsidized cereal. In Cote d'Ivoire, 
and I think Togo and Senegal as well, uh, the government announced investments in the agricultural sector. The numbers range between 300 to 400 uh, billion CFA. So investments in agricultural inputs, support for seasonal workers to at least enable them um, have a network or a system for moving around because mm-hmm. quite a number of agricultural systems in the region depend on seasonal workers moving from one country to the next. Quite a number of countries, for example, Senegal and Niger, have put in place plans for distributing food kits or at least making um, food available to the most vulnerable in their countries. Of course, with poverty rates in the region being pretty high for some countries, I think Nigeria, as of a recent report from the National Bureau of Statistics, the poverty rate in Nigeria as of 2019 is about 40%. That is a huge number for a country of 200 around about 180, 200 million people, most of them in the northern region of the country, under pressure from climate change. So there aren't any easy solutions to addressing the food security situation. And I think that's why pulling back, um, what we tried to emphasise in the region was how important it was that these responses at the national level have to be coordinated. It's really, really important for governments in the region to share information and as well to support platforms that are being created for tracking and and sharing information on how the crises, at least the localised crises, are evolving so that national response plans can be updated, can be adapted. There's also the role for international partners, international actors, international bodies, like the World Bank and the IMF. A number of countries, like we highlighted highlighted in the expert comment, have drawn on some um, rapid emergency financing from the IMF. So a lot of this kind of funding and investment will go a long way to supporting the protocol and protocols and measures being put in place to address the health emergency itself, but even more so cushion the economic impact of the global recession and to plug in the gaps in terms of the balance of payment needs, social protection needs of these countries. So I don't know if that quite answers your question, but I think it's really, really important not to dwell on the Mm trade-offs themselves, but to really see how a lot of these challenges are connected. And within that, to ensure that approaches or efforts to address one, for example, address the spread of the virus, do not make others worse. Final question then, maybe it's too soon to tell as we sit here at the, at the beginning of May, but do you think that this message around the importance of coordinating responses across the region Do you think that message has been heard? Uh, Do you see sort of positive signs from the governments, from the responses of the governments so far? Do you think people are starting to to cooperate in this area? I I think the short answer is yes. Organisations, regional bodies like ECOWAS have been stepping up in recent weeks to um, support their member states to develop and implement a more joined up response. 
Um, at the end of April, there was an extraordinary session called for ECOWAS heads of state and government. And it was at, the, at that meeting that um, Nigeria's president, Muhammadu Buhari, was nominated to uh, coordinate the regional response. So his role will be, you know, in supervising all the different ministerial coordination committees across health, finance and transport to make sure that responses at the national level do not interrupt regional actions as well. So, yes, there has been very, very positive and encouraging efforts to coordinate on a regional level. I think as well, there has been a very critical role being played by the Africa Union in supporting regional bodies and supporting individual countries to expand and, and improve their testing capabilities, their testing capacities at the at a national level. So there has been like really positive steps and very encouraging efforts to coordinate at a regional level. I think most countries are realizing as every day passes with this pandemic, that our, for, that our fortunes are connected. Therefore, responses to the pandemic itself and all the challenges that 2020 will face will need to be connected and coordinated as well. So I think that this might be a, a really good outcome for the region, having to face an emergency crisis like this among many that the region has faced to be able to put into place protocols and measures that help it address multiple crises at the same time might actually be something to build upon and to deepen. And I think something that we mentioned in the report that might have been a harbinger to this, the Permanent Interstate Committee for Drought Control in the Sahel, which is an intergovernmental organisation that was set up in 1973, was set up after quite a devastating drought in the region. So the beginnings of establishing systems for monitoring the food um, situation in the region came out of an emergency. So I think it's the hope for a lot of observers and, and experts and technical partners for the region is that as a region, if it's um, facing this crisis, the health crisis and the economic crisis, would be could be an opportunity to strengthen regional efforts and strengthen regional organizations such as ECOWAS and SILS and UEMWA. Absolutely. So grounds for tentative optimism on that basis, at least. Lena Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was so interesting and good to hear some, as you said, green shoots of hope. Yeah, difficult. But yeah, there were some things. I think that whole kind of regional cooperation angle that Lena was was discussing in that interview was really, really important. And it sounds like the will is there, even if it's going to take some time to actually realise it. So we'll hopefully have Lena back on at some point later in the year to give us an update. Excellent. We will be back next week with some more great interviews, but just want to reiterate what we said in the introduction. 
if you want to tell us about what your life has been like, uh, how Corona has impacted you, please go to our website, which is undercurrents.libsyn.com. And on the right, there is a little button that says send an audio message to undercurrents. And yeah, record us a little update of your life under two minutes and we will try and amalgamate as many as we can or use them throughout the upcoming episodes. But in the meantime... I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Mm-hmm.